and welcome to the podcast of TechU. I am your host, Andre Degler. In today's episode, I would like to share with you a conversation with Guy Pajarni, the president and founder of the company called SNCC. I'm uh, Guy Pujarni, or oftentimes go by Guypo. I am the uh, founder and president of Sneak. Sneak is a developer-first security company, so we build security tools for developers to sort of weave them into a software development. Prior to that, I'm sort of like, a, I'm, I'm Israeli, so I sort of went from the cyber parts of the Israeli army to sort of a security company that got acquired by a security company that got acquired by IBM, founded another one, Performance, a startup in Performance that got acquired by Akamai, so I was CTO at Akamai for a bunch of years. I kind of uh, moved from uh, from Israel to Canada to London and currently based in London. <laughs> yeah, what, uh, uh, so why London, actually? Uh, London, I moved to London in part as a life experience to sort of try it out and in part because uh, Akamai, where I was at the time, needed help uh, uh, driving the adoption of the more uh, advanced technologies that we had in Europe, which wasn't adopting it quite as, uh, as uh, quickly. Uh, and then uh, we liked it. We liked the proximity to Israel and uh, we settled down. That is proximity uh, relative, like uh, compared to Canada. Yeah, it's basically it's the closest English-speaking country to Israel. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense. And uh, uh, just out of curiosity, so there are so many uh, Israeli founders who, with uh, uh, the army cyber force background, do you guys actually have uh, a social network of your own? Do you all talk to each other? Is it like a mafia sort of thing, like in in the good sense of the word? <laughs> I think the uh, the uh, so it's too big for us to know uh, everybody, uh, but there's definitely a network. Probably the the best analogy is like the Ivy League universities in the U.S. or sort of any of those. It's a group of people who were kind of filtered to get in because of certain skill set, and then grew faster because they were working with all these colleagues who had that type of sort of a, a shared skill level. Um, and then subsequently, you kind of get hired out of it. You know, people that served with you in the army, but got out of the army before you, they're now in tech and they know you and so they pull you out. So it creates that type of network that definitely feeds companies and employment. So uh, it definitely is a long-term network, but it's pretty big now. Like I, uh, <laughs> I don't, we definitely don't, all know each other, although sometimes people assume you know people and uh, it gets awkward. <laughs> right. And do you have many people with that same background working with you uh, in SNCC? Yes, absolutely. SNCC was founded in sort of London and Tel Aviv as like a two-headed monster. And the kind of a talent that we tapped in London was people that understood uh, developer experience and user experience and product methodologies and sort of, you know, the de- were thought leaders in DevOps. And the people in Israel typically had more security depth, you know, kind of more fearlessness maybe around startups, uh, kind of, you know, hungrier and, and, and driven there. And so that combination is probably the makeup that eventually made up Sneak. And it's probably like one of the key drivers for our success, frankly. Great. So uh, now that we have uh, come seamlessly to Snick, what is it? So uh, Snick's kind of a reason for existence is, uh, is what I called uh, dev-first security, which is it's the idea that in the modern development world, uh, everything predicates on these independent teams that can run quickly, that you know can deploy continuously and can write software, get it to the hands of a customer, understand, you know, learn from that experience, and then adapt the code back again. Uh, and kind of the faster that loop is, you know, the tighter that loop is, the faster it does, the better the business does, the more competitive. And in that, in that change, security generally hasn't come along for the right. You know, security tends to sort of still remain central with people that dictate uh, what's right and what's wrong sitting at a single pod. And that, you know, that doesn't really scale. And so our 
uh, understanding, or maybe our light bulb moment was, uh, we, we have to get developers to embrace security. And to successfully do that, we need to build a developer tooling company that does security. And so Snake was, was built to sort of, you know, walk and talk and quack like, you know, a, a dev tooling companies like your GitHub's of the world or New Relic at the time. And we build a variety of, like a platform of security tools, what we call a developer security platform, that helps you find and fix vulnerabilities as a natural part of your kind of software development process. Uh, at this point, we have, I think, about 3 million developers using the product. It's, it's bottom-up, so most of them, you know, nobody shoved it down their throats. They, they chose to, uh, to use it and picked it up. And we're tackling kind of a, an increasing number of security problems or sort of find vulnerabilities of different types, but mostly it's around securing your use of open source, securing your code, your container images, your infrastructure as code. So a lot of sort of modern development stacks and, and just, you know, we, we kind of have your back. We'll pop in with, you know, hey, this, this problem existed here. You should know about it. You should prioritize it this way for a developer. And we'll, one of our claims to fame is that we actually fix the problems that we find as well. So we'll kind of walk okay. you through and open a, a fixed pull request with the code changes needed to actually, you know, just hit merge and, and get back to your work. Automatically, that is. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so it's it's basically we combine some sort of depth of analysis of the application itself, so we understand the application, depth of security, so we understand what's right and what's wrong, and then developer experience, you know, to sort of actually make this usable for developers. And that developer experience includes also things that the security world is generally not awesome at, like giving developers proper context about how does this relate to your application, uh, not assuming security expertise, and one of the big things is, you know, a developer's job isn't to find issues, it's to fix them. And so if I'm just going to give you a list of problems, you're not going to like me very much, you know, over time, you know. <laughs> and so if I want to get a security product developers actually love, actually want to use, I need to also help them out. And so we kind of act uh, almost like a, like a friendly teammate, you know, like if, you're, if, you're, if your teammate, your colleague would have found this problem, figured out the safe version of the library to use or the code change necessary to, to make it fix, and then opened uh, what's called a pull request, sort of you know, a set of code changes to propose to be merged into the mainstream. And then another teammate says, yeah, that looks good. You know, I'll, I'll kind of pull it in. Uh, so that's what we, uh, you know, it's uh, one so of the So it's basically opening pull requests instead of uh, creating Jira tickets. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Sometimes we also create Jira tickets. I think sometimes <laughs> companies like the, you know, you do need the governance piece as well. But, uh, right. but for the developers, I think pull requests are the way to go. So you said 3 million developers are they own paying customers? No, 3 million includes sort of the free tier. I don't know the precise number of, uh, of paying, but uh, the business has been booming. I mean, we... You know, we just raised this sort of uh, yeah, month, we've noticed. monster uh, monster <laughs> round at uh, at a valuation of uh, eight and a half billion dollars. You know, businesses, you know, uh, roughly going to triple in revenue this year. We grew about two and a half x last year. So both are big numbers, but also it's unusual for companies to accelerate growth when you get bigger. So that was uh, that was really nice, and yeah, it's been uh, no complaints. You know, it's been growing quite well, and you know, I guess the most to me the the most exciting thing is is that this uh, this premise of developer for security is really taking hold right that today if i compare now versus you know 6 years ago when when i founded it uh, at the time i had to preach it people were well it's not going to work no 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 security has to be central and today i think there's a lot more acknowledgement that you know there's no other option you know you have to have to, the only way to scale security is to sort of build it into software development and and now we you know we get into a much healthier conversation of saying oh do our does our solution satisfy your needs and you know fortunately most of the time it does <laughs> 
Right, right. And how about yourself? Are you a software developer? So I'm a developer by trade. Kind of a, that was my uh, skill set. I then became a product manager. I think I'm probably best described as an architect. I overly see everything as a system and sort of moving parts and how they interact. Um, and I guess I guess I'm also uh, officially a serial entrepreneur, having founded and sold uh, there we go. several <laughs> companies. But uh, yeah. Oh yeah, and I had another opening question, uh, which is, uh, what's actually what's Snick? What's the what's the name about? <laughs> Snick. Uh, so the origin of the name was uh, from sneaking out. Uh, uh-huh. It was the idea was to sneak data out of the of the application so that we can understand you know what it's doing and help you know if it's mm-hmm. secure. But we'll spell it with a Y like the cool kids do. Uh, and uh, then I googled it, and it turns out Snick is short for so now you know. So mm-hmm. now you know. Uh, okay. And it's uh, that clinched it, you know, that sort of uh, made it very clear that <laughs> that's so the now name. I know. I did not anticipate how many questions we'll get about how do you pronounce sneak. So <laughs> it, it, it is like the like the shoes, like sneakers, like sneaking out. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And why the dog on the logo? Uh, you know, there's actually more depth to that than uh, maybe you'd expect. So the everything around the design of the company tried to walk the line between developers and security. And so uh, the, the color scheme, the language, everything around it. And in the logo, uh, animal logos were very popular at the time. I think still are fairly in, uh, in, in the dev tooling, DevOps uh, world. But you also wanted it to be, you know, actually like uh, something that conveys that it'll protect you and so a guard dog made sense and we iterated like if you take the sneak logo and you flip the eyes you just kind of take the uh, uh the semicircles that are the eyes and you just sort of flip them around it becomes too friendly we really we really kind of try to really find an exact line that says okay it's it's a, it's a pet you maybe want to own but like if you see it in the street you kind of want to keep your distance uh so you know to to say that it's guarding uh, so it's a uh, there were a lot of these types of decisions. Uh, I think we nailed it. Uh, the dog is named Patch, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, thoughts around what else we can do with it at the moment. Yeah, there's a no. That's a good explanation. I really, uh, I really like it when there are reasons for uh, certain uh, design decisions. And what you've been, what you've been saying so far, what I, uh, what what's interesting. And uh, I'm not particularly like I I do write code, but I'm not a developer, and I would not think that there is such a big distance, big gap between, well, software development and security. Because, I mean, if you write code, you are supposed to think about security. Isn't that so? So I think every developer in the world, pretty much, if it was the same effort, would rather write secure code than write insecure code. But there are two problems. One, uh, it's not the same effort. Tools, security tools are mostly written for auditors, and then at best they're kind of plugged into a build or, or a development environment. Uh, and so they just they just don't really elegantly work for developers. And as a result, most of these tools are rejected by developers. You know, they're used minimally, if at all, and they're worked around. And so I think the one thing that we had to solve for was just make it easy. You know, naturally think I mentioned a few examples of, of what that is, but really it boils down to like a million small decisions around truly, that's what we mean by dev first security. I, I, I love, I love uh, talking to CISOs and tell them, you're not the most important uh, user of my product. You're going to sign the check, but you're not the most important user of the product because you and I both share the same biggest risk, which is 
developers are not going to use this. Uh, and so the most important user of the product is the developer. It's not dev only, it's dev first, because everybody needs to, to their needs address, definitely the security team to be able to successfully secure the org. Uh, but developers need something that's easy. And then the second thing is security is naturally invisible. You know, I like to say that it, it doesn't hurt until it hurts really bad. You know, it, it, uh, and so you don't know, as a developer, you don't know that what you're doing is insecure. Security is complicated. And, and so we have to invest intentionally in visibility. And we've done this with DevOps. You know, DevOps has all these ethoses of like, you know, if it moves, measure it. If it doesn't move, measure it in case it moves, you know, and, uh, and those, all these dev, uh, dogmas. We, we need to evolve that in security. We need to build indeed tools that integrate into your that without intending to will tell you, without you explicitly asking, will tell you, hey, this thing you're doing here is insecure. You know, you, you should do something about it. And then, of course, subsequently make it easy for you to actually address it. Right, right. And going back to your explanation of what Snake does, so maybe it uh, sounds uh, um, intuitively understandable uh, to the people close to uh, this industry, but uh, uh, for the rest of us, so what exactly does it do? Does it just like analyze the code and uh, what does it find there? Yeah, so it plugs in, it integrates into the places developers already work. So into the development environment, like the, the editor in which they write code, uh, into the build system that compiles the code into the the source control or Git system where people collaborate when one developer might review another developer's code. So it plugs into all of those systems. It's not a place sneak, the developers need to go to separately. And what it does is it analyzes the code of different types, you know, different pieces of the code as developers write it to find uh, problems. For example, a developer would choose to use uh, you know, an open source library, which in turn uses five other open source libraries, which in turn use 20 other open source libraries. And one of those is vulnerable, has a known vulnerability. And so we we track all the known vulnerabilities. So we, we keep a database of known vulnerabilities in the world. And we have this application intelligence, this analysis to say, okay, we see that you added this library and we can figure out it's going to use these other 20. Uh, and we pop in at that time and we say, hey, you're using a vulnerable library. You should, and then sometimes it's like you should uh, upgrade to a different version of this library, just like you would update your phone or your computer. And uh, you, sh you know, and again, we'll sort of simplify that that uh, that fixing. Similarly, we will scan your uh, infrastructure as code. Today, developers increasingly define the cloud infrastructure themselves through code. So they will create some storage bucket somewhere that says, you know, put the files over here, and maybe they defined that with excessive permission, so it's accessible for anyone to access on the internet. So we'll flag that. And of course, mistakes in your actual code. You can write program, and programs have bugs, software has bugs. Some of those bugs have security implications. So we, we analyze uh, the actual software, which is a very complicated technical problem. It's called program analysis, and it's, a, it's what's called an NP-complete problem. It's, it's a, you can never fully assess programs, but we do a really great job at it. We've actually uh, acquired a company in uh, Zurich, uh, coming out of the ETH uh, University there that, that built some, invented some new math, you know, like really brilliant technology there to do it. And then all of those together, they combine into integrating and just naturally surfacing security mistakes when developers make them uh, and help them fix it. And, and it's, the, 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 um, the reality is that I do believe that it's the only way that we can build uh, secure software. If you look at the 
if you look at the, the world, you know, kind of our reality, then what you see is, you know, every year we spend more on security than we did the year before. And every year there are more breaches than ever before. <laughs> so that's not a good equation. You know, you, we can't keep that up. And I think one of the key factors in changing that is to, is to actually weave security to be an aspect of quality um, and, and to build, uh, you know, this isn't like some nation states that is after you, right? Like to build good security hygiene, to lock the doors and close the windows, uh, but do that at scale and do that at speed so your business can actually both be secure and be competitive, right? And be fast. Um, so that's what we're here to do. And in terms of uh, programming languages and generally like the development stacks, yeah. So, how, so today we support very, very uh, many, many different languages. You know, but we maybe something that's interesting to think about it. So developers like depth. If you're a JavaScript developer, you couldn't care less if I support PHP or or not. Uh, security people prioritize breadth because you know they want to tackle a certain security risk and they don't want different tools securing different apps in their system for the same security risk like vulnerable open source libraries or, or code mistakes we because of our depth dev first approach we take a depth first approach to the languages and so every time we add a product we first pick a smaller number of ecosystems to support and we do a deep job about them and so we started originally with javascript uh, we expanded to uh, to Java and later to uh, and, and to Ruby. I think around the same time. And since then, you know, we've gone a long way. Uh, now we support practically all the languages. You know, Go, Python, uh, .NET stack. Uh, really, at, at this point, we we support C C plus plus and kind of going further back. We actually acquired a great company in uh, Sweden. Uh, named Foss ID, which which further like even goes further back into history and helps you. Uh, uh, helps us identify open source components that you might have just copy pasted some code off the internet and uh, and put it in your code and, and still identify that. So today we, we, we have both breadth and depth, but we still stick to that. Like every time we ship a new product, we stick to that sort of depth first approach. Yeah, the false idea acquisition was something I also wanted to ask about a bit more. So, and what you just described, so it identifies these uh, snippets of code. Uh, what what does it do it for? Like, what, what does it matter that you uh, copy pasted something from Stack Overflow or whatever? Yeah, so I think some of it is is methodology, and some of it is, is uh, history. So, uh, open source is is amazing, you know, and everybody should be using it and is using it because it helps you not reinvent the wheel. Uh, but the way it is consumed, the consumption of it has grown, and the way it is consumed has evolved. Uh, Today, when you use an open source library, you do it in a much more declared fashion. So you're you're sort of using a, a library, and you have some manifest file, some file that says you're using these libraries, which in turn, you know, all this structure. It's also hard to track, but it's it's at least declared. In certain in in the past, that wasn't the case. You would you would fork, you would sort of copy some code from the internet, and you'd put it in, and and also. Even today, for modern systems, sometimes that's what you do because of uh, tight controls. So especially when you think about like embedded devices, like medical devices or cars and things like that, they oftentimes also prefer to really like copy the subsets or the specific bits of the code and put them in their system. The, the challenge is open source, because it's so prevalent, it's not that open source is more or less secure 
than closed source software. But what it is is more prevalent. So, you know, the same library, the same piece of software is used, is open, and is used by many, 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 many different companies. If you think about OpenSSL and the Heartbleed vulnerability that actually made it to mainstream, Heartbleed was a severe, but it wasn't like the most severe vulnerability. But OpenSSL was powering at the time, like, you know, half the sort of secure web. And so it's really the prevalence on it. So as a company, what you want to do is you want to know which open source components you're using, because the attackers are seeking, they're, they're focusing energy on building exploits for op- vulnerabilities in open source components. So you want to know which open source components you are using, which, which, which bits and pieces, so that they would, so, so you would be able to track whether they have known vulnerabilities, whether they've discovered and fixed a vulnerability in that code and apply it. So that's the security lens. And the other bit is license. So when you're using open source, you also need to be very mindful that you're sort of adhering to the, to the rights that the open source creator has, has given you in their license. So that's another important reason for you to know which open source doing you're doing. What FOSSID does is we, we've been very good from the get-go or from like the early days in this declared in managing and sort of using that declared libraries. What FOSSID does very well is looking at your actual kind of application and looking at bits and pieces you might have copied into it. They've built a couple of petabytes of open source materials that they kind of sign and analyze and they help you figure out which pieces uh, you know, identify files that you just sort of have floating around as actually pieces or entire open source components, so you can deal with them. So a right. bit of a long-winded answer, but hope it. No, this is a, no, this is this is really interesting. It's a, I'm really I'm always very excited about uh, learning more about these industries that I am not necessarily touching in my daily life. So like just some parallel worlds, really for me in a way. But uh, for what you were saying, uh, what, what I can see is that so there are two like different big categories of uh, security issues in software development. One is the way people actually, well, develop the software. They can uh, make mistakes or not think about software and something is wrong there. And the other is they use these uh, open source uh, uh, libraries, uh, bits and pieces, which uh, have known or unknown yet uh, vulnerabilities, and uh, those actually get cracked, get hacked uh, at some point. Which one is bigger? Yeah, I mean, so it's actually a great question. Historically, the industry has been much more focused on analyzing your custom code. But that's really for a historical reason. Today, a, a typical application, less than 5% in most of these applications, less than 5% of the code is actually you know, your own custom code. Uh, software today is assembled, not coded. And that's a good thing. It's the reason we're so fast. It's because we don't have to, again, recreate that uh, every time. Um, But it does mean that we need to change our lenses around what is more important. And the other aspect of it is for an attacker to find a vulnerability in your custom code, that's a lot of effort. They don't have access to the code. And so they have to probe from the outside and invest a lot. And at the end of that, they have one victim which is you with your custom code. While for an attacker to identify and exploit a vulnerability in an open source component, it's far less work. They have the code, they can deploy it at home and you know not risk getting caught when they try to exploit it. And at the end of that, they have many victims, all the users of it. And so uh, open source represents or bad handling of open source components, not properly addressing those vulnerabilities is far more likely to get you hacked you know, to drive a breach than your custom code. And, and in general, I guess the, uh, we're talking, uh, mentioned a little bit of sort of security hygiene. You know, I think in general, 
uh, there's glorifying. It's very cool and sort of sexy to talk about you know, the, the advanced, it's called advanced persistent threat, you know, sort of about the sort of the, uh, uh, these nation states, these sort of very sophisticated attacks and the security industry is filled with fear mongering and sort of telling you how, you know, the attackers are ahead of you. In practice, most breaches happen because, you know, you forgot to lock the door and the window, you know, and, and it's because we move so fast and we have so many, so many of these doors and windows that we overlook them. So it's, it's easier to fix a vulnerability in an open source component. You just get the newer version, but there are just many more of them and we, we need to keep up. Yeah, and also, I'm not really sure how bad this problem would be for more like industrial uh, grade uh, development, uh, but uh, on a lower scale, I mean, you do use a lot of those uh, open source uh, libraries and some of them may indeed rely on uh, other open source libraries and uh, some of those would be either abandoned or just not maintained properly and they would have those vulnerabilities but then and then for example snake says that yeah okay this is this is a problem but like if nobody is going to fix it then what do, then what do you do what's the uh, sort of what's the alternative here yeah you know so so the good news is that most the vast 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 majority of vulnerabilities in open source components do get do have fixes uh, and so most of the time that's not the problem and and sneak actually helps open source maintainers fix the vulnerabilities when they need that. So we actually help them create those fixes. When you do encounter cases that you can't uh, fix it, sometimes, sometimes Snake offers you a patch. So we actually allow you to patch that vulnerability. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes you need to, to understand to go a level deeper to say, okay, how does this risk my application? And what other, it's called a mitigating control you know, can I put in place? You know, the most extreme mitigating control is you can take the system offline. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. There's like a very, very severe vulnerability in an application that touches very sensitive data and you're better off just unplugging that system while you fix the problem uh, instead of uh, allowing your data to be caught or to be stolen. But, you know, oftentimes it's a bit less uh, dramatic than that and you need to understand, okay, do I filter certain types of inputs so that an attacker can't exploit this? Or sometimes you, you replace it, you know, it's a world of choices. And so if one of these libraries became uh, outdated and it's not maintained and it's not getting fixes, oftentimes with a certain amount of software effort, or development effort, uh, you can replace it to another library that is more, you know, alive and well and, uh, yeah. and more secure. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I've been talking for 25 minutes and mostly about the technical side of the company. So let's just, uh, let's maybe uh, shift uh, quickly towards, uh, towards the business side. You already mentioned uh, that You've recently raised another round of funding over a half a billion dollars at a valuation of $8.5 billion. What's happening? Why do you need so much money? <laughs> so the opportunity in front of us is pretty enormous, right? This is developer security. And so you want to reach all the developers in the world and we want to provide them with all the security value we can, kind of help them secure all their work. And there's a big uh, backlog. There's a big gap of all sorts of work they're already doing that they haven't had good security tools for. And we believe that developers don't, you don't want as a developer to have, you know, when you edit one file in your system, have one security tool pop in. And when you edit another file, you know, you have another one. And so 
we, we believe and kind of users are telling us that they would like for us to cover the full breadth of what they do so they so they kind of have one one friend there right you know one uh, or one throat to choke if you want to you know the negative uh, but and really sort of one uh, one supporter to help them build secure software and similarly on the security side we want to uh, uh, you want to be able to understand all these different pieces in in one place and so that's what the market is driving us towards so th- these big raises are uh, they end up you know helping us grow faster and and hire more developers and uh, um, uh, and, and kind of build more tools uh, f- uh, faster they allow us to acquire companies like we I mentioned Foss ID and uh, Deepcode in sort of Zurich and Sweden we acquired a company in Halifax Canada so you know acquire you know great teams and great technologies that make sense to fit into this vision and our companies built in a way that can absorb those acquisitions well um, and and so the funds help us uh, acquire those and it helps put our uh, it, it helps uh, uh, our partners and our customers have a certain uh, greater comfort that we're here for the long haul. That if they make a bet on us and they introduce us to their thousands, tens of thousands of developers and they integrate around us, that we will be there as a partner for them uh, in longevity and we won't just get acquired by some side company and then suddenly the direction will change. Um, so all of those are, are good reasons to do it above and beyond as we think as we start thinking ahead around, you know, eventually becoming a public company, then these rounds are an opportunity to bring some amazing investors that are known to be the best in sort of the public market and long-term holders. Uh, and so start building a relationship with them from earlier on. Yeah, that, that was the next question, really, because I would say that even not the latest, but the round before the latest already put you sort of onto this IPO territory. Like this is just normal, like generally you can you can IPO at any point almost in the life of the company, but most of the companies, most of the tech companies, uh, uh, they IPO after uh, the round of a size uh, like you raised before uh, the latest one. So why did you decide to stay private for longer? Yeah, I think you know because we're building a company that is that is meant for the long run. Going public is is uh, almost feels like an inevitability. Eventually, we will go public, most likely. But there's really no urgency in it. In the industry we we live in right now, we get to bring those great investors. We get to offer our employees some liquidity. We get to capitalize the business as much as we need without going public and during that time we're building uh, so we're growing i mentioned uh, a little bit of the of the rise of growth but we're growing at a very very fast pace at that pace you know it's sometimes a little bit harder to create predictability and the market really rewards predictability so that's you know as we build better and better systems and kind of get ready to become public company we'll approach that uh, that go public moment it's less it's less around you know, capital needs and more about feeling like the company is ready uh, from our operational uh, side and such. And you know, we're we're not in a rush. There's a there's no strong urgency, but because we think it's an inevitability, we we do we do always look for the right time uh, to pull the trigger. Right. And another question that uh, I was uh, thinking about. How do you describe yourself in terms of geography? Are you a European company? Are you an Israeli company? Are you can, like any other company? And, and also, just as a follow-up uh, right away, uh, when the time comes for you to go public, uh, where do you think you would do that? So we really are a truly global company. You know, the company was started in London and Tel Aviv, 
Uh, and generally, most of research and development is still done in Europe, uh, but it also has an Ottawa, Canada branch that was early on, and Boston, uh, Massachusetts in, in the, uh, the U.S. is probably uh, the biggest branch right now, definitely from a go-to-market. Uh, and, and we have great West Coast presence, and we have these other companies. So we actually are very distributed. We decided early on that uh, the there, no team will be co-located. And so even, even though we have multiple offices, there isn't like the Tel Aviv team and the London team. There is, uh, there is a team <laughs> that is split between locations and the offices are more sort of social and cultural centers. And so because of that, we don't really need to pick. There's no one HQ. You still have to deal with time zones. So I think our identity is, is pretty global. And uh, what you end up seeing is uh, people who prefer to think about us as an Israeli company think about us that way. And people who prefer to think about us as European think about us that way. And they're all right, you know, because we do have those, uh, those roots, but we're not only that. Right. And the IPO question, where do you think would you go public um, when you have so, to? So, so we're still exploring, but I would say that the stronger gravity is towards uh, a U.S. Uh, IPO, mostly mostly due to um, kind of the, the investor base and kind of the investor demand of where do they want us to, uh, to go there. At the end of the day, an IPO is, uh, doesn't change like our operations of where we would employ people and grow it. It, it has more to do with where do our investors, where do investors want to trade our equity? Um, and uh, the kind of the, the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange uh, at the moment feel more compelling than the European alternatives. Would you consider a SPAC merger? Uh, SPACs are more for companies that are, that the market doesn't quite get. And for us, we are stellar at all the metrics the market loves. <laughs> so from uh, from the growth rates to the net retention to the sort of the profit margins to the sort of the, the SaaS model. Uh, and so, yeah, while you can, you know, it's not easy to, uh, to guess that we've been approached uh, quite a few times, uh, it's unlikely to be the path we'll take. <laughs> right. Okay, so before we go, I also wanted to you sort of uh, uh, draw for us an even bigger kind of picture. What is this uh, market of uh, uh, software development security like? What's the landscape like? What's the competition like? What, what are what's the trend are you seeing? Uh, what, what is your view like? Yeah, so I think... I think the world is is moving towards these sort of independent dev teams and putting more and more responsibility on dev. And as 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 a part of that, and and, and everything is becoming kind of software driven. So as a result of that, developers are going to grow. There are going to be more and more and more developers. What is a developer? Will is it's not one thing. You've got you know low code developer, no code like people that build maybe slightly less deep systems, all the way down to people. Uh, building kind of uh, the, uh, the the from bare metal, uh, but they're all developers, and those developers are increasingly empowered. So they will make decisions about more and more infrastructure, more and more uh, uh, business decisions, more and more data. And those have security implications. Those decisions have security implications, um, and so the space is pretty huge. It's filled with uh, with you know reaching all of these different developers and giving them you know more security needs. It has broad sweeping technology like you know what we do around securing uh, cloud or securing infrastructure as code and it has it can have niche 
uh, solutions, like you know, specific dedicated solutions for securing you know self-driving vehicles, right, or 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 such. Um, so, so I think I think the uh, the market is going to be huge, and in fact, I think much of the security industry, definitely the IT security industry, will morph into this uh, world of developer security and grow rapidly with the pace of uh, of software development. Um, so, yeah, I'm not too worried about uh, about uh, market size market size over here, and I think at the end of the day, it would help us build a, a kind of a more secure, you know, digital world. So, I'm personally excited by it as well. Do you consider yourself uh, uh, the biggest uh, player on the market? I, I think we are. We're definitely kind of the biggest player and the leader in the developer security approach. We have you know specific competitors which I appreciate and we compete with. You know, on the sort of the the case by case specific threat. Yeah, we we are. I think at this point, fairly fairly clearly the the leader of the developer security motion. Right. And since you mentioned no code, I have to ask. So, what's your what's your take on that? And where and like if no code really becomes as big as uh, the proponents of the movement uh, tell us, uh, where where does uh, Snick uh, fit in this brave new world? Yeah. So it's it's basically when you when you think about platforms, there's a whole range of how much you know rope do you get to hang yourself with, you know, or like what's the propensity, the opportunity for you to shoot yourself in the foot, you know, all sorts of bodily images. But uh, the in, in in the the more the less freedom you have, then the less creative you can be. The more constrained you are, uh, but you can be fast. So certain use cases work for that environment. Many business applications, many repetitive workflows, uh, and and those surroundings create constraints. They it's it's easier to build a secure system because there's fewer moving parts. But they still do make decisions. Even the simplest system gives some users access to some data, and there's going to be security implications about that. They process data in some fashion, and they can choose to, you know, to, to expose some of it or not. And all of them have some form of logic. So even though simplest systems have security implications, clearly the more complex the system the more it needs it. I think I, I think low code and no code will absolutely thrive, but it won't be at the expense of the deep developers. It would be alongside. It's because so many of our digital, so many of the business world would move to become digital. And just like spreadsheets, you know, have become the toolkit of any sort of business professional, so will software. So will sort of low-code software. And uh, all of those would require a supporting tooling ecosystem. And uh, and they will kind of keep growing in perpetuity. I don't I don't see that changing uh, anytime, or at least in the foreseeable future. So you so you do see Snick working with those low code no code tools? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And I, I will say that like we want to make software development secure in the best way possible. Sometimes it means partnering with the platform providers to give them the knowledge. So a low code platform, you know, removes complexity from its users, but it needs to handle it itself. So it might need to know whether open source components are, are vulnerable or to inspect the customer's code on their own. Uh, and so we, we work. We actually have many low-code platform customers. I'm not sure who, which of them I can name, so I'm not going to do that now. But we have many customers that, that use it precisely for that, for that benefit. Yeah, and, and there are more in the pipe. 
Right, understood. Okay, I've run through all my questions, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to talk. Thanks a lot for uh, telling more about Snake. And uh, uh, good luck. Good luck with everything you're doing. Good luck with uh, Snake, your fundraising, your IPOs, and everything else that's uh, that's in the future. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Happy to uh, share the journey. And uh, yeah, really kind of uh, enjoying the the broader tech ecosystem that uh, that Europe is really building up at a rapid pace here. So. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our show, follow us today wherever you listen to podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Our audio engineer is designed by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are very welcome. Please send them to podcast at tech.eu. This was TechEU Podcast. I am Andrew Daigler, and I will talk to you again very soon. For now, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye-bye.